The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Um, we thank you for this past holiday weekend that we could get some rest, spend time with family, um, Lord, perhaps even spend some time just giving thanks for how you have cared for us, how you provided. Um, so, Lord, I, I thank you um, just for this weekend. Um, and, Lord, ask as we gather here this morning um, and as we open up your word and we look at the life of Hezekiah, Lord, would you help us to see something of you? Would you help us to see how you've been at work in all of history to uh, point and anticipate, Lord, your future coming. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, there, just recognize that there is a lot here and there are a ton of rabbit trails. But Lord, I, I pray that you would help keep us focused just on the main point or the main ideas that you would have for us as a church here this morning. So Lord, um, use, use this morning and uh, Lord, show yourself to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of a Catholic church. And these 95 Theses were statements that were intended to bring reform to a defective Catholic religion and one that had gotten off track. And this event is often recognized as the event that kicked off the Protestant Reformation. So when, when we think of Reformation, often our, our minds are drawn to events like these, events and a public proclamation where we make something known, that something is wrong and something needs to change. We think, that, we think about big public events. We think about challenging corrupt systems. We think about establishing a better way Reform will happen if enough people subscribe to a certain message or set of beliefs, and then together we can bring change, we can bring reform. But as we think about Luther and his own individual life, is it possible that the Reformation started sooner than the 95 Thesis? Was there some kind of reformation first that needed to take place in his own mind, in his own heart? Or was it by his own grit, his own determination that reformation came about? I think as we look at this, we recognize that there's a greater power, there's a greater work that brought about the Protestant Reformation. And I would argue that the Reformation started when Luther understood the power of the gospel as he read the book of Romans, and it transformed his heart. The Reformation started when Luther started to seek God, humbling himself before the creator of the universe, and he believed the good news of the gospel, that there was nothing he could do on his own to become righteous, but that Christ was his righteousness. The world will always be in a constant pursuit of reform and change, but the question I want to ask this morning is, how does God intend to bring about reform? What is it, where does it start? What does it look like? 
And so today we're going to be looking at a passage of, of the life of King Hezekiah, and uh, these are events that we're looking at are found in Second Chronicles chapters 29 through 32. And so as, as we look at this, um, uh, I want to first just think about and consider some of the background and context of, of this passage and, and Hezekiah's life here. Um, so if you don't know of the book of Chronicles, technically it is written as one, one book, but we have it in our Bibles as First and Second Chronicles. They had to be on separate scrolls because it's a long, a long book. And this book was written, in a, uh, written to a post-exile Israel. So if you remember the, the history and the events of, of Israel and the southern tribe Judah, both of them at different points were exiled from the land, um, northern tribe to Assyria, southern tribe to Babylon. And in this, this is a book that is meant to help and inform them of who they are to be as a, as, uh, as a people and what kind of king they are to set before them and, and what right temple worship looks like. So as we look at Chronicles, much of this it has kind of a rose-tinted feel to it where we look at the ideal king, the I- ideal kingdom. And a lot of the gritty details that we'll find in Kings and other passages are somewhat overlooked. But that's intentional on, on the part of the author because he's, he's trying to tell us something about God and what we are looking for, what we are to long for, and what God's going to do. So as we look at this book, we should be thinking, who is this ideal king that is to come? So in previous sermons, and this is the fourth in this series, we've been looking at some of the reforming kings of Judah. Before this, we've looked at Solomon, we looked at Jehoshaphat, and then we've also looked at Joash. And now this morning as we look at Hezekiah, I want want to think about some things that are in his background that will help just set up the story that we're going to look at and read this morning. So Hezekiah, he is the son of Ahaz. So if you go and look at the life of Ahaz, Ahaz, his father, his life was summarized as this. It said, and he, did not, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the king of Israel. So in the life of Ahaz, we see that Ahaz followed in the ways of Israel, which is not good. He allowed idolatry and wickedness to enter into Judah. He made metal images uh, for the Baals. He made offerings. He even burned his own sons as an offering. He sacrificed and made offerings on high places. So idolatry and wickedness is all around his life and has come and rests in the land of Judah. So this is the father, this is the kingdom and the state of things that Hezekiah is entering into. Also, during the the reign of Ahaz, uh, the northern nation of Israel, so that's the northern roughly 10 tribes um, that has separated from the southern nation of Judah, Uh, the nation of Israel has actually been uh, taken over. They've been invaded, and they've been exiled. So the Assyrian Empire has come in and basically uh, deported a a large number of people to different towns in Assyria. And then in, in replacement, they've actually brought a bunch of people from foreign lands and put them into the nation of Israel. Now, this isn't total, this isn't everybody, but this is the core of of the people of of the nation of Israel that have been uh, taken away. So with that, what is happening in and around Judah is that there is war and captivity all around them. 
their northern brothers and sisters are gone, <laughs> deported, gone. But then also we see much of this during the reign of, of Ahaz is that during their time, they were given over to the king of Syria. And at one point earlier in Ahaz's reign, uh, the king of Israel actually killed 120, uh, 120,000 people from Judah in one day. We see that there's another nation, the Edomites have invaded and they've defeated Judah and some of their primary cities and carried away captives. The Philistines are making raids and taking over cities within Judah's territory. And then in all this, Ahaz is calling out to the king of, uh, of, of Syria, or of Assyria, and in that, uh, Israel or Judah becomes what would be known as a vassal to Assyria, which basically means that you keep paying money to them or you keep doing whatever they ask or they're going to come and, and actually rule over you. So they maintain a degree of independence here, but really they're under the, the fine thumb of Assyria here. So war and captivity and problems are sitting all around and within Judah. And this is the context in which Hezekiah becomes king. So he begins his reign on a land that is overrun and tyrannized by many nations that we just listed. But most prominently, the Assyrians are there knocking on the door. And there's war, captivity, brokenness, and a threat around every corner as Judah hangs on to its own, its own sovereignty. But Judah is also under the wrath of God for the faithlessness of Ahaz. So Hezekiah, as we see, as you look at chapter 29, verse 1 there, he begins his reign when he's 25 years old. And it's from here that we're going to look at a biographical sketch of, uh, of Hezekiah's life in, in three major acts or movements. And then with that, we're going to consider a couple uh, lessons and applications. But the major acts or movements of the story are going to be this. The first, we're going to look at the reform of Judah. We'll spend most, a lot of our time here. Second, we're going to look at the deliverance from Assyria. And then third, we're going to look at the glory and pride of Hezekiah. So first, let's, let's look at the reform of Judah. What is the reform that takes place here? So uh, in 29 verse 4, I'll pick up reading. He says, he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. And he said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs they also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or burnt offerings or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of God came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, and as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and to make offerings to him. 
So prior in the reign of Ahaz, he pretty much boarded up the temple and used it for idolatrous worship. And here we see in the very first year of Hezekiah's reign, his heart and his disposition towards God is very different. So he comes in and he opens up the temple. And, and similar to previous kings, uh, he initiates a reform. And his reform starts as he reopens the temple, and then more specifically, he calls the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves so that they might rightly and purely mediate between God and his people. So the temple has been neglected, right worship for how God has instructed Israel and, and Judah to worship has, has been forgotten. And so Hezekiah goes and opens the doors and gathers the priests and Levites and says, hey, this is changing here. And this, this is where the reform began. So when, when it comes to reform, I think many of us have ideas about what needs to change as we just think about this in general. We're all very good at finding problems and, and pointing them out. And the what of reform is, is one thing, but the how of reform is something else altogether. And here in this passage, we get a glimpse of how to biblically think about reform and how God uses Hezekiah to bring that about. And so as we're going to look at just some of the events that follow here, how does this reform take place? And so what, what I'm, uh, I'm going to provide here is three steps to a healthy reform. And conveniently, all, all three of them start with C. And they're all a silver bullet in the sense that if you do them, reform will happen. That's a guarantee. Joking. <laughs> but what we're going to look at here is that with, with this reform, there are some, there's an order of things. There are some principles that's important for us to think about. And so the, the three C's or the, the three ideas of reform that I want to talk about here are confession, covenant, and change. So confession, covenant, and change. So for the first step, confession. So as we look closer at the passage we just read earlier, there's more than just temple reform going on here. In fact, in verse 6, we see that there's an acknowledgement of generational sin and guilt. Hezekiah says, Our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. So notice Hezekiah doesn't say your fathers. He says our fathers. He identifies with this. And he recognizes that, that what's there is, is, is wrong. And so this acknowledgement here is, is a form of confession. It's an honest and transparent look at the evil and unfaithfulness and calling it just that. It calls it evil. It is this evil and forsaking of God that has brought upon his wrath into the land and led to the dire circumstances that they find themselves in presently. So before reform or change can actually be pursued, uh, there, there's a need for us to identify um, not, well, there's a need for us not to just identify what's, what's wrong in society. I think all of us, if you were to take a, a sample around the room, we would be able to have, you know, create a huge list of things that are wrong. That, that's not the hard part. 
But the harder part is determining from whose perspective what is right and wrong. And here, ultimately, God's perspective is what matters most. And as we think about the problems of the world, the first and foremost, the problems are spiritual problems that manifest themselves in tangible ways. The problem here, as Hezekiah recognizes it, is that God has been forsaken. And that we need to look to God and see things as he intended them to be so that we can see things as they are truly meant to be. So here there's a confession and a recognition that things are not as God intended them. And we need to start with that acknowledgement of sin. We need to confess and call wrong what is wrong. So here with Hezekiah, in terms of this reform, he starts with a confession, a recognition of, of what's wrong. Second, then, we move to the idea of covenant. So following a form of confession, Hezekiah initiates a covenant. We find this in verse 10 where he says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. So as we look at this, uh, the text tells us that this is not just merely a, a formal covenant in word, like you just give a, a dry I'm making a covenant. <laughs> but here we see that this is a covenant that was in his heart. It was in his heart that he wanted to make this. And if you think about the heart, when the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, uses the word heart, it, it talks about the innermost aspect of man. That the heart is one's mind, one's mind, one's soul, one's will. It's all of who they are and what they desire. So when we see that it's in Hezekiah's heart to make a covenant, this isn't just a rite or ritual that he needs to do to appease God because God says make a covenant, but it's actually something that, that is coming from his heart. It's his desire there. And throughout Judah's history and many of the prior reforming kings, the idea of covenant has been actually very essential to Judah's prosperity and to God's presence remaining with Judah. In fact, it was God who first made a covenant with David, a covenant in which he would promise to place a king on the throne and to establish that kingdom forever through David's offspring. So here, Hezekiah isn't coming to initiate a covenant on his own terms. He's actually making a covenant in light and remembering a covenant that God made with him, what God has made with his people through David. So when God makes a covenant of promise, God, never, God will never go back on that promise. Because God is not someone who lies. When God makes a promise, he fulfills that until the end. And it will, stand until, it will stand for all eternity until it is fulfilled. So the challenge here for Judah is that they are to enter into this covenant and hold fast to it. But also... It comes up in that Solomon, he succinctly recalls the promise that God gave to David in, in these words. He says, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk in my law as you have walked before me. So God has made a covenant with Israel, and though that covenant stands, we also see there's a condition here that the blessing and prosperity of Judah is only realized as long as the sons of David walk in light of that promise and remember that 
that God has made that, and then in light of that promise, that they walk in the law, that they obey God from their heart. So when we read that it was in Hezekiah's heart to make a covenant, there's an acknowledgement of what God has already promised. Hezekiah doesn't need to generate something out of his own pursuits or his own ingenuity to bring reform. Rather, he's just to seek God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. And then all these things will be added to him. As he seeks God, that's how flourishing will come about. That's how peace and prosperity and the kingdom will expand. God is the one who is pleased to provide care and to sovereignly orchestrate events for his people. And that's, that's the covenant that God has made as long as they seek him, as long as they walk with him. And historically, through the history of Israel and Judah, we see that that is a, a constant, <laughs> they miss the mark, right? That one moment they're walking with God, the next moment they've forgotten him. And here Hezekiah comes in this time where they have forgotten, and now he's calling them back but in the end, if, to most simply think about Hezekiah's covenant here, is that his, his covenant is most simply understood as this. A heart to seek God in all circumstances by remembering his promises. A heart to seek God in all circumstances by remembering his promises. So as Hezekiah makes a covenant with God, he says, I, we are going to seek you and trust that you will hold up your covenant with us. So, as we think about this, after confession of their former sins, and we see a renewal of the covenant to seek God and to trust Him and to remember His promises, the next uh, step or aspect of, of reform here is change. So the third one, change. Once the heart of man has been humbled to seek God and to trust his promises, only then can real change begin to take place. So here in the series of events found in chapters 30 and 31, which we're, we're going we're gonna to cruise and do a very high view look at this. These are really fascinating. Um, there's some fascinating details here if you want to read and look at this later more closely. Um, but here in, in these events, we're going to see that there's a growing and contagious change that spreads out from beyond Hezekiah into the nation and, I would say, to the nations surrounding them. And that there's, there's a communal covenant that is undertaken here, not just with Hezekiah himself, but with the people of Judah. So how, what does this change look like? How does the reform begin to take place? Well, first of all, uh, we see that the temple is cleansed. The altars and the utensils are all cleansed. So for the first two weeks in, in the first month of their calendar year, the priests and the Levites go in and they clean the temple. They open the doors, they remove all the filth, all the idolatrous stuff that may have been left in there, and they begin to cleanse and sanctify and to treat the temple again with holiness and reverence and respect according to the way that God had set it up to be. So they, they cleanse the temple. So we, we see change there as they restore that. Second, they also... Uh, restore their sacrificial worship in the temple. See that they begin to uh, offer a number of burnt offerings, sin offerings, free will offerings, peace offerings. And so the, the sacrificial system is up and running again um, 
as they, as they go forward. But in this too, we also see that they reestablish worship in there. So if, if you look down there, that it shows that they, they, they assemble musicians and singers, and, and as they're performing their sacrifices, there is a wholehearted worship, Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So catch this. Hezekiah sent letters to all Israel and all Judah. So what first started with a king initially included the priests and Levites. And then in the text earlier, which I didn't read, but it's there, it says, then the city officials. We see involvement of the princes, the rulers, the local rulers of the area. And then we see the people of Jerusalem and the nearby cities of Jerusalem coming to participate in this. And now... He's writing letters to all of Israel and Judah. And this is significant because if we think about the timeline, Israel, northern tribes before, they, they'd been invaded and a number of them taken captive. But here, there's no more ruler for Israel. There's no more standing government. And Hezekiah sees the opportunity to see the rest of Israel reassembled and regathered and this represents a potential new fresh start as one united nation. And so he goes and pursues the fragmented nation of Israel and Judah with the prospect of, of one ideal nation, much like the days of, of David and Solomon. So in all of this, we get the sense that this is not just merely temple reform or even just religious reform. But rather, this is building energy and movement towards something larger. And perhaps a more helpful word might be, this could be a form of, of revival taking place. Now, I don't use this word in some of the specific ways that it could be defined, but just more in the general matter that in this, there's a growing interest in the people of God for the things of God. And there's a contagiousness that as it spreads going forward. And so how, how does this go about? Well, in verse 6 in chapter 30 there, it says this. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes. And as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, uh, to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away, turn, uh, turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So in this past, we see this, this call that goes out to all of Israel. And really, there's, there's an implicit call here of what we were talking about earlier, there's an implicit call for Israel to confess their sin, to recognize their wickedness, to renew the covenant. 
There's an implicit call for them to change, to come gather uh, around uh, the, the sanctuary, the house that he's consecrated forever. So Hezekiah takes this and, and, and sends it out to all of Israel and Judah. And so after sending the, the, the couriers with this letter, interestingly, there, there's two responses to this. The first response we see in verse 10 is, that, is this. So the couriers went from city to city throughout the entire country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed at them to scorn they laugh them to scorn and mock them. The couriers, so the couriers bump into the faithlessness of Israel and their stiff-necked ways. And not, not all the people want to participate, right? They're being scorned and mocked for their wanting to restore, be restored to God here. So that, that's the initial response. But then that's not all of it. It doesn't stop there. We see the second response. However... Some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So in a small yet significant way, as God is gathering together a remnant of his people left behind in the wake of sin and the consequences of sin. But we kind of get the sense that this might be the minority of them, right? But he's gathering them. And here, there's, there's hope as, as people are, are returning back to Jerusalem. And the, the hand of God is on them to give them one heart to obey the word of God. And so it's with this that they're all invited to return back to Jerusalem to come and celebrate the Passover. And this is what most of uh, chapter 30 focuses on here. But so many people come from all over the land of Israel and Judah to come celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Breads, Bread. But if you notice, it's not without complication. First of all, um, if, if, you're, if you are an expert, and I'm not, by the way, but if you're an expert in uh, the feasts and gatherings of Israel, <laughs> you would notice that Passover is actually supposed to take place in the first month. But here, they, it's, uh, they've missed their window just by the way things are going. But Hezekiah takes initiative there to delay it and to say, okay, we'll just start it up in the second month. So that, that's, that's one complication. Second here is that uh, is, is best uh, realized here in, in verses 18 to 20, which I'll read. For a majority of the people many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than is prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah, and healed the people. So, if they were good Jews, the proper form would be, we only celebrate Passover in the first month. That's the rule. <laughs> I guess we'll need to wait till next year, right? And then also, we see that people from all over the nation are coming, and they're unclean. 
They haven't been living the life that God had set out for them. And so they're coming here to the Passover dirty, unclean, unable to, uh, in the right ways, participate in worship. But here, that doesn't stop it. And I think this, this is an important point here that Hezekiah sees something. He sees that the heart of man coming to seek God is the first and foremost, foremost the most important thing. And so he prays to God. He appeals for the people and says, you know, like, uh, they're coming here to seek, seek you. And, and God hears his prayer. And, he, and it says he healed the people. And I, I think this, there's, there's a problem when Sometimes when we think about uh, the rules or reforms, we get so caught up with some of the rules and details that we miss the heart. But here, um, we get this idea that, that Israel and the return to Jerusalem is kind of like, maybe you guys have heard the phrase, the church is a hospital, right? That when there is a, a wounded and sick and hurting world, the church is to be a place where people can come in and find relief to come and seek God. They don't, you don't need to get yourself in order. <laughs> you don't need to get healthy before you can come in to the church and get healed, right? And so this idea that uh, the, the church is a hospital is that in some ways it kind of breaks some of the form of worship. It breaks some of the rules, some of the things that, we're, that we've set out for, for proper worship. But God sees their hearts. He sees that they are coming to seek God, and he honors Hezekiah's appeal. And so in all of this, the, the cleansing, the restoration, the sacrifices in the temple, they were all necessary to worship in right form. But what we need to know is that reforming change is meaningless if we're only concerned about form. Reforming change is everything when we are concerned about right heart. So I think this, this is an important point just to pause on of, and ask ourselves a question. As we interact with a broken and unbelieving world, are there certain rules or forms or expectations that we have put on people that they need to do in order, they need to do something before they can come to God, before they can interact with us? Or do we, are we able to see through that and to see that when someone is looking for life and significance and seeking God, there's something about that heart that needs to be recognized and commended and the barrier removed. And in this, we see, again, just that Hezekiah properly models the right heart of God and welcomes all to come and worship. And I think with this, this doesn't mean that we just disregard form in the end and say, do whatever you want. I'm just happy you're here. But I think it's that right heart, right heart will lead to right form, but right form doesn't always lead to a right heart. So, so eventually, you're going to see they're going to get things organized and they're going to get stuff going the right way and then out of a right heart, then they can obey, right? But we've got to start with the heart, and, and that's, that's what's held up here. So moving forward, the result 
of the Passover assembly is this. In verse 25 and 30, chapter 30, it says this. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. And so there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, uh, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. So this scene is just, with the right heart, it is full of joy. It's full of joy and, and um, a rejoicing. And then in this, we get the sense that God is pleased to hear their voice as they come to him with a right heart. So the, the events of Passover and this gathering of this large assembly in Jerusalem, Jerusalem from all across Israel, it continues to snowball momentum. And the right heart is spilling over into a full and joyous obedience that continues to bring revival to the land, that continues to bring reform to the land. And just in a quick summary, some of the things that follow this is there's, they, as they, uh, the typical Passover feast is you have the Passover meal and seven days of unleavened bread. Well, they're having so much fun, there's so much joy that they decide to extend the gathering for another week. And then in this, you see Hezekiah and the princes that they generously donate like thousands of animals to keep the festival alive. So we just see a joy and generosity that's growing in and among the people that is first modeled by its leaders. Secondly, following the feast, one of the fruits of this is right after all of Israel then, as they leave the Passover, they go and break down all the pillars, the ashram, the high places and altars throughout all of Israel. There, there's a, an eagerness to see idolatry done away with and right worship with God again. And so out of this assembly comes just a, a scattering back to the lands to do away with idolatry. Also in that we see uh, there's a reorganization of the priests and Levites. Now one of the problems that they were running into that you'll see in, the, in some of the details there is that they didn't have enough priests or Levites to be able to do the things that they were doing here. And so in many ways, the Levites who um, are supporting and stepping into some of the, the priestly roles that are not theirs by nature, they're doing that. But there's a need for reorganization, for right worship to be able to host. And so in that, there's, uh, they begin to continue to commit themselves to this kind of change. But then lastly, we see that there, there's a, a tithe that is taken up and that Hezekiah calls people to give their portion that's due to the priests and the Levites so that the priests and Levites might give themselves to the law of God. And one of the awesome things about this is that everyone gives so generously that there's an abundance, that they've got to create extra storerooms, and they've got to figure out a plan to go and redistribute and get all this abundance of gifts to the proper people, to the proper priests and Levites. So in this, there's just a snowballing momentum of joyful obedience to God and what he has done. And that's what leads me to think that there is a revival of sorts taking place. So in summary to Hezekiah's life, it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God in accordance with the law and the commandments, 
seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So Hezekiah has a wholehearted obedience. There's a growing joy and generosity and an abundance among the people of Israel. So in light of this large and growing reform taking place, we're then quickly reminded that there's actually a global political situation <laughs> happening all around them as they're gathering together. And um, this is where we want to turn here uh, to look at the deliverance from Assyria. So in chapter 32, verse 1, it says, After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. So Assyria, who is just previously in the generation before invaded, defeated, and taken Israel into captivity, is now pressing in on Judah. And in this, uh, they continue to expand their empire more across the Middle Eastern world, and, and Judah is the next nation they have their sights on. So in this, we begin that Hezekiah, in light of this looming threat, he gets to work as, as their commander, as their leader. And he begins to make some of his own tactical plans. So there we see something about a river and water that he actually redirects a stream so that it can't flow and benefit uh, the Assyrian army. We see that he begins to rebuild walls and towers, that he begins to make in abundance weapons and shields. He sets combat commanders over the people. And alongside these preparation, uh, these preparations, Hezekiah encourages his people to have faith in God. And he tells them, be, in verse 7, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah the king. So as Hezekiah encourages them, Assyria continues to, to press in and they begin to attack a town, Lashish, which is another city within the nation of, of Judah. Um, and from there, the king of Assyria sends his servants to Judah and to Jerusalem to attempt to discourage Hezekiah and all of Judah, to discourage them from trusting God and fighting against him. And in them, kind of a quick summary of what he says, he says to Hezekiah and to the people of Judah, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands all able, at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? And he goes on and says, how much less will your God be able, able to deliver you out of my hand? So the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes in and he very directly defames Judah and their God, Yahweh. In doing so, he continues to send them messengers and to write letters that are meant to disparage Judah. And all point to the hopes that Judah will surrender, right? That they will give up their rights and it will be an easy victory. So Hezekiah, feeling the weight of these things and the turmoil of the threats, together with the prophet Isaiah, so like the, the prophet Isaiah who has the book, they, they, they seek God, and it says they prayed because of this and cried to heaven. 
So upon seeking God without much detail, basically, the, the Chronicle author does this with such simplicity. Kings is way more expanded in, in the ups and downs of this event. But basically, they, they pray to God, cry to heaven, and then verse 21, and the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So in essence, God sends an angel who then cuts off the Assyrian army. And by cut off, the detail that's not included here, that's included in Kings and Isaiah, is that there's an angel that struck down in that one night 185,000 men. <laughs> it's a big event. And through this, and through a number of events, uh, this is what sends uh, Sennacherib retreating home to later at some point, we don't know the timeline exactly, this could be years later, but at some point to be struck down with the sword. So here we see that God wonderfully hears the prayers of Hezekiah and Isaiah and he saves them in an incredible fashion. In verse 22, he says, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hands of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. What a king. <laughs> he's brought reform to the land. He's gathering everyone from the nation. Here he's defending his nation with honor. He's done all these things. And though this is all true, the author brings our attention to the question of the heart and character of Hezekiah. And I don't know uh, what the footnote looks like or the, the title in your Bible looks like, but above verse 24 in chapter 32, mine's labeled Hezekiah's Pride and Achievements. <laughs> so there's seeming success, but there, there's, there's a thread running through here that is troubling. So this is the third, the pride and glory of Hezekiah. So in, in the historic timeline here, the events listed below this title, especially verses 24 through 26, um, the, these events don't necessarily chronologically follow what was listed there above. They're interspersed kind of within that. And, uh, but the, the author, he's chosen to place it here ultimately to remind us that Hezekiah in the end, is not going to be the true king that we've been longing and waiting for. And though Hezekiah was a man of great faith, there's also a low-grade pride that remains. And there's consequences for that. So verse 24, he says this, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God did not come, come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So as we see here, 
the quick summary is that Hezekiah was deathly sick. And he prayed to God, and God delivered him a sign. And, and the sign, if anyone has a memory of this in, in Kings, is that there, uh, Hezekiah asked God for a sign that he would heal him. And so in this setting, there's, there's, uh, God says, I will give you a sign. And he says, instead of a shadow advancing this way, I'm going to turn back, basically turn back the sun and advance the shadow the other way. And that's going to be the sign. So it, it's, it's a random thing, but the author of Chronicles here doesn't, doesn't highlight that. Um, so then after this miraculous work, the sign that has been done and the healing that's been brought to Hezekiah, he again begins to drift towards pride and he doesn't show gratitude to God for this healing. And likely this is what then leads to the wrath that God brought upon him with the oncoming attack of Syria. But in this too, we still see the heart of Hezekiah when confronted, he still humbles himself before God. So he does bear a heart is honoring in that sense. The passage from that point on, our attention is drawn to the great riches and honor bestowed upon Hezekiah and how he prospered in all his works. Um, but there, there's one detail about this low-grade, self-reliant pride that comes to hurt Judah in the end. And we pick this up in verse 31. And so in the matter of envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So like Solomon, the nations are drawn to Israel because of God's greatness and the works and the signs that he is doing there for his king and for his people. But in this, and again, this, 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 uh, this is explicit in other passages, so we kind of got to import it here from, from Kings. But in this, Hezekiah and these envoys from Babylon, they come to seek, which is natural. They come to ask questions because they're amazed at what God is doing. But here Hezekiah invites them in, and he shows off all his treasures. He shows off all his wealth. And likely here, he's also having some conversation about forming a political alliance against Assyria. And in this, there's a low-grade pride and reliance of self that Hezekiah begins to trust in the things that God has blessed him with, the things that God has blessed the nation with. And like Solomon, he's, he's drawn and tempted towards this being something that he has done for himself. And in the end, it's Hezekiah's pride that will one day set up, ironically, but <laughs> irony is God's way in history, right? Ironically, that Judah is going to be taken captive and deported by Babylon, those who he invited into his house. And Isaiah speaks against this in other passages, but in the end, we see that God gives rest to Hezekiah and the nation of Judah for the rest of their days. But it's not without some complexity. And so Hezekiah is the closest we get to the likeness of David and Solomon, but yet in the end, he is not enough. We're still left waiting for the greater offspring of David and a king who will reign eternally from the throne. So it's with this, I just want to consider two very brief lessons and applications here for us as we just think about this series of events. 
The first is this. Reform without revival of the heart will always let us down. So reform without revival of the heart will always let us down. Now, I think the desire for reform, that's a good and natural and human thing. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that there is so much inconsistency and injustice that the desire for reform in a better way is natural. But the problem becomes when we try to solve the problem on the level that it's not meant to be solved. The problem is when we, try, when we think that we can arrange society and, and systems in a certain way as if that's going to solve the problem, when really what we see that the problem lies deep down in the human heart, needing to be reconciled to God and changed and given his desires. And so when we talk about revival, we can talk about it on a couple levels. We can talk about it on the level of the individual life, but we can also talk about it on the level of, of God's work or uh, across wider groups of people. But do you want to know the starting place of revival? It always starts and builds upon revival in the individual soul, in the individual person. And so as we, as we look at a model of how to reform um, or how reform can take place like in an Old Testament context, what we find frequently over and over again is that Israel or Judah or mankind in general is unable to reform in a manner that brings lasting change. In a, in a way that brings lasting change for even more than a generation. And so we constantly find ourselves thinking, if we only had better systems, if we only had better practices, better programs, better organization, better leaders, then we could bring about lasting reform and change. And in this, our, our focus can drift to these kinds of things when really God is most concerned about revival of one's heart and character. So in, in one sense, all of the Christian life is to be lived in a reforming posture. So we, we, we think about this from um, the Reformation or today, maybe we even hear of the idea of Reformed theology, which has some different tenets and things that we think about. But if you think about the heart of what Reformed theology is, is that what are we being Reformed to? <laughs> We're being Reformed back to God and to his word and what he has for us. So in the Christian life, we're actually called to a life with a reforming posture in which we regularly return to God and his word and his ways. And we need to recognize that we have the tendency to drift and rely on self. And that's why the Christian life is lived in the cycle of reform that I talked about earlier, of confession, of covenant, of change. As we drift, we call sin what it is. We call evil what it is. We call pride what it is. And we bring that to God. And then in that, we come and remember what God has promised to us through Christ. We remember the covenant he has made with us as we covenant ourselves to him, as we seek him and depend on him. And then it's through the confession and turning of our sin and this covenant, this renewal to seek God that then change comes and filters in through our life. And that's, that's what 
reformation looks like. That's what revival looks like in, in, in the Christian life. But in the wider scale of things, and when it comes to reform across groups of people, we notice that it's very unreliable. There's a cyclical nature to reforms and revivals. Didn't our nation, didn't Europe have huge revivals in the last 200 years? What happened? <laughs> why, why are those not sticking? Well, read the Old Testament. Read it. These things don't stick. <laughs> we see the heart of man that continually wanders. And, and in the end, it, it leaves us to ask the question of where does true and lasting revival and reformation come from? And in the end, it only comes through Christ. It comes through Christ dwelling in the individual believer's heart, dwelling in the community of believers' hearts. But we don't have a promise right now that as the way things are apart from Christ, that things are going to get better apart from him. But we do have the hope that one day he will return and he will gather all his scattered people throughout all the nations and he will build a kingdom where reform will never be needed again. And so we anticipate one final reform form, but the path to participate in that reform is the reform, the revival that needs to take place in each of our hearts, and that needs to happen on a daily basis. So reform without revival of the heart will always let us down. And lastly, God is most concerned with one's heart and humility. Hezekiah started with the right heart, and in the end, he humbled himself. Um, but there were still consequences for his pride, both in his life and the life of the nation. And so the question for us to ask is, what is the most central desire of our heart? And if it's something that's drifting away from God, do we have the humility to recognize that and to return and to call it that and to humble ourselves before God? So God's most concerned with one's heart and humility, but in that we need to be wary of pride and the tr to trust in our own resources or in ingenuity. So we just spent this last week being thankful for a number of things, and so I want you to think about this. Where has God blessed you? Where have you had reason to give thanks? Now the next question I want, I want you to think about is, how might that blessing turn into a stumbling block? if you begin to rely on that and to take that grant for granted and forgetting God is the one who has given you that. I've struggled this even in my own youthful experience as a preacher. I get a few reps under my belt and I start to feel good and I start relying on self. And under that, there's a call that needs to say, no, come back to God. This is about him. This is about his word. And so I, I wrestle with that in my own my own heart and my own life. And, and, but I think it's important for us to recognize where are the blessings from, but also to keep the giver of those blessings connected to that, that we don't begin to assume them or rely upon them for our own joy and satisfaction. We're all prone to pride and destruction, but God is pleased to welcome anyone who humbles himself. He welcomed Hezekiah back like that. Hezekiah humbled himself welcome back. 
spared them for the rest of their gen his generation. But in the end, our hope is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the true king. The king who has come to reside personally and communally in the temple of God, the temple being his people. Jesus is the perfect king, priest, prophet who reigns over the world and unifies all his lost, exiled, and scattered people from all nations, tribes, and tongues. Jesus is the reforming king who must revive our hearts, and he is the one we must continually seek to be reformed by. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.